Thank you, Jelen, and thank you for organizing our day of prayer. Just a reminder, uh, right after the service, if you are saying, if you say to yourself, whenever you hear me talk about my four, which are the four people you're asking God to use you to reach, and you go, well, I don't even know how to get my my four, or you have them, and you go, I don't know what to do with the my four, then we have a shared Jesus seminar that answers those two questions. What is my four? How do I get my four? And then how do I reach my four? And so that happens right after this, 1130 the chapel. Uh, please be a part of that. Uh, you don't have to sign up, just come. Uh, before I preach this sermon, I think I need to, to kind of set uh, the context of this because it's, gonna, it's going to seem odd to some of you. So if, you're, if you don't usually come to church or you uh, are pursuing the idea of Jesus and trying to figure out who he is and what it means to be a Christian, or you're new to church, this next passage of scripture is going to seem very odd. In fact, you might even think that it's wrong. And you're going to say, well, if that's the way it is. Or... You're going to hear this and you're going to think, yeah, I've been through this before and it was the worst thing I ever went through. And you're going to struggle to go, how does this God that we sang about today, the God who loves us and reaches us, why would he ever write something like this? It just, it's almost a dichotomy that our minds can't put together. Because we, have, we know God loves us because he sent his only son to die for us. So if somebody's dying for you, that's true love. But then to follow him is going to involve some hard things. And, and, and I suspect that if Jesus is an add-on to you, in other words, I'm going to add Jesus to my life because he'll make me better. He'll make life better for me. You're going to struggle with this passage. But if Jesus is your Lord and your master... You're still going to struggle with it, but you're going to trust him. And you're going to say, okay, Lord, if that's what it is, then I guess that's the way it is because God's thoughts and ways are not my thoughts and ways. Oftentimes, God calls us to actions and attitudes that don't make sense to us because he's building a totally different kingdom. Anyway. I think I've kind of confused you enough in preparing the ground. I'm going to pray because the Holy Spirit can do a lot better than me. So let's pray. Jesus, this morning we ask you to be honored and glorified through your word and through this service and through this teaching. And Holy Spirit, my prayer is you bring light and understanding Help me to say the things I should and not to say the things I shouldn't and to have the right attitude because I think that's important in understanding this passage. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, if you're a parent here, you've been probably been through the this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you situation, right? My son, my second son, Denver, was eight. He had this massive gash in his calf I took him to the merge. The doctor said, I, I, gotta, I gotta sew this up. And the only way to really do that is I'm going to have to put needles for freezing in the wound while it's open. And that's going to hurt. 
And it's important he doesn't move when the needle goes in because who knows what will happen to the needle if he kind of jerks and moves. So you've got to hold him down while I do the needle. Now, I did not say to him, now this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you because he wouldn't have believed that. But I did. I, I held him down. I told him, if, if you move, um, somebody's going to be in trouble. And I held his leg, and the doctor jabbed it three or four times. Now, it did hurt me more than hurt him, because after about five minutes, he forgot about the jabs, because it was all frozen. And I've never heard him talk about it since. It's 22 years later, and I still, when I was writing this, I, I, I got, still get teary-eyed and a knot in my gut when I think about what I had to do for him, for his well-being. Sometimes what you have to do actually will hurt you more than it hurts the people that you're caring for, especially when you're disciplining your children. Now, the next, this passage we're going to go through is one of those, this is going to hurt me more, it's going to hurt you, but the person I can believe you passages that I've been through six times in my ministry, and I hope I never have to go through it again. Because it is one of those times that's the most difficult when you're leading a church and you're trying to care for the church and for people and sometimes those things don't come together. So I'm going to read the passage to you all uh, out full. You'll see some particular uh, verses are going to pop up on the screen as I go through them. And so this is uh, from 1 Corinthians. It's the next passage in our series. It's actually, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So people know, like it's coming out all over the place, that there's sexual immorality among you. Meaning any kind of sex outside of marriage. And of a kind, even the pagans don't tolerate. So, so you're putting up with a type of sexual sin and immorality that even your non-Christian neighbors wouldn't put up with. And this is what it was. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now clearly, he's not sleeping with his biological mother. He's, his father has remarried for whatever reason, and the son is now sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Because you think now, well, we have freedom. You're going to get this in this book. We have freedom in Christ. We can do what we want. It doesn't matter what we do in the body. As long as our soul is, you know, connected with God, we're okay. And so you think you're proud about this because it just demonstrates the freedom that you have in Christ, or so you think. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put your fellow believer, or put out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this. Now, that's the first time Paul's going to mention this. Like, you should have been dealing with this public sin by putting this man out of your church. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, meaning I am in a total agreement with what I just said. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this, 
So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, meaning I'm giving you all my authority as, a, as an apostle, the authority I received from Christ, and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be... Now, the yeast is a metaphor for sin. Get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of that sin so that you may be new unleavened batch. Uh, you may be a, a body, a church, that's not being weighed down by this sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified. Therefore, let us keep the festival, which... If you knew the Old Testament here, you know that there's a festival of unleavened bread that's around the Passover, meaning he's tying into that idea that the picture leaven is sin, unleavened bread is purity, and that was what you were supposed to be celebrating during the time of the Passover, which is a figure of Jesus dying and coming back to life and being resurrected. And, and we were to eat, or they were to eat unleavened bread, meaning they were not to participate in sin. And so now Christ has rose from the dead and we're not supposed to live in a way that is sinful. Don't eat or don't live with the bread leavened with malice and wickedness but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So as a follower of Christ, you're not supposed to live your life as if it's just like everybody else in the world who lives and has no reason to obey Jesus, but you are followers of Jesus, <coughs> therefore you should be living in a way of sincerity and truth, which is a way to say truly seeking God with your life. I wrote you this my letter to my associate, or I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. But I don't mean the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolatry. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Paul says, I'm not trying to, to expect non-Christians to live up to this standard. They don't have Christ. They don't, they're not, Christ isn't their master. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them. I'm not saying they're the people I'm telling you not to associate with. Uh, associate. Yes, I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater, slanderer, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Meaning, it's not my job to judge those outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? Oh, uh, judge not, lest you be judged. Paul's saying, yes, you're supposed to judge inside the church, meaning you take what Scripture teaches and you hold people accountable to that. You don't judge them for their value. You don't judge them for what you can't see or the attitudes. You say, Scripture says no sexual immorality. Hmm, you are in a sexually immoral relationship. You need to change. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's his final words of the chapter. Expel the wicked person. So I think to make this clear, I, I, I'm going to try to say this as many times as I can. Paul is not talking here about you and me when we fail and we sin and then we feel sorrow and shame over our sin and repent. He's not talking about it. He's talking about a person who is publicly sinning. So there's the first thing. Publicly in sin and says, I don't care, 
I'm not changing. I'm going to do what I want. It, 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 that's who he's dealing with here. He's not dealing with those of us that sin, and then even the sins he mentioned then go, oh, I, 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 gotta, I, I can't believe this. We confess our sin and we deal with it. That's not who he's dealing with. <clears throat> he's dealing with people who refuse to repent from their sin and don't care about the impact they're having on the people around them and on the church. So that's the first thing we need to understand. Now, the question I would have thought going through this passage is, why in the world would God command his church to expel, put out somebody from the body? And I think the answer to that is in the illustration I shared with you. Why would a doctor tell me to hold my son down while he jabbed him three or four times with a needle so he could be healed? Sometimes it requires pain and discipline to bring about healing. If you're a parent, you know that. But as a church, we struggle with this. Especially if God's an add-on and he's supposed to make our life comfortable. If that's, your, if that's the sense that you have that Jesus is an add-on to your life, I follow Jesus, and then you get upset when things go difficult or bad or painful, then you're really going to struggle with God. But if you love God and you love Jesus and you're following him knowing he's the master and he says, the, you'll still go through difficult times, you're still going to struggle, but you'll trust him. Because after all, his ways and thoughts are different from my ways and thoughts and he's good, and I'll trust him. So why would Paul command this? Well, for healing. And there's two, re- there's two ways he's going to talk about healing. First, the healing for the individual. Look at verse 4 and 5. So when you are assembled, and I am with you, meaning when you're gathered together as a body, and I'm with you in spirit, meaning you have talked to me about this, and I've given you my authority, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, meaning you're doing this in the name of Jesus, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We'll get to that in a second, but look at what he says. So that, a purpose clause, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So, the purpose for this is Paul is saying, because he's really concerned about the soul of this person. And if you read the writings of Paul and the writer of Hebrews, you will find that if we do not deal with our sin, our sin can lead us away to wander and even shipwreck our faith. And there will come a day when we'll stand before Christ. And Paul says, much rather would I cause pain in the person's life now to wake them up and bring them to repentance than to allow them go through life not knowing what's, not, not caring about what's happening. Nobody really uh, confronting them or challenging them about their behavior. And then for them to stand before Christ and have shipwrecked their faith. Much rather would I save their soul. Much rather would I go through the pain that's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt them than allow them to lose their faith. And so for their healing, that's why Paul says. It's it's the same way we do as parents, right? We discipline our kids. Why? Because we want to change behaviors and attitudes that will cause them trouble when they're older. We want to bring out, Proverbs says, 
take out the foolishness of a child's heart. And we all have foolishness in our heart, even as adults. But as children, we really have foolishness in our heart. And, and Solomon says, by discipline, expel the foolishness so that they won't suffer when they're adults. So they'll be wise, they'll make good decisions, they'll live lives that honor God and their spouse and their children and their church. And that's what he's referring to here. I said, I told you I've been through this six times, and it doesn't, um, the heart of people is, is, gets hard sometimes. Sin can do terrible things to a heart when left untouched. Uh, and one of these times, an individual uh, was, got involved in sexual immorality, and um, it became public, and so the church, the elders had to deal with it. Now understand, uh, when you're dealing with something like this, it's not one discussion and you're done. It's a series, it's a prayer, it's discussions, it's meetings, it's, it's trying to help the person, it's coming alongside them, it's encouraging them, it's challenging them. And it happens over a period of time until the elders are convinced we've done enough, it's time to go to the final step. And we did this with this individual and he just kept rebuffing us and turning us away. No, I'm not interested. And, Elders would go to the individual and friends would go to the individual and no, 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 no. Until finally we had to enact discipline so people would understand that the way that this person was living, who happened to be a major leader in the church, was not acceptable. And today, it doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. No interest in Jesus because he wouldn't leave a sin. And so it's important that you care enough about the soul of a person, says Paul, that you're willing to lead them through a discipline process. Now this uh, statement, Paul says, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He also uses that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, or 1 rather. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you, Timothy was his protege who was leading a church and Paul's writing him how to handle situations in the church. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you might fight the battle well. Uh, they, that should be said to everybody coming into ministry. You're going into a battle. You better learn to fight well. Holding on to faith and a good continent. Holding on to faith, which implies I can let it go. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. What? Rejected their faith and rejected holding on to a good conscience and honoring God by the way they live. And they so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Shipwreck is a total loss. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. There it is again. I got thinking, where, <laughs> what is this? And then my, I think the spirit brought my mind to Job. Job was handed over to Satan. Remember that story? If you don't, let me give it to you. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, back and forth. 
Have you ever had your teenager say that? Hey, where you been? Oh, you know, here and there. <laughs> Probably not a good thing. <laughs> then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered, now it's God that points out Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and he shuns evil, a righteous man. Does God, now Satan speaks, does God, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Has not your hand of protection been around his life? I can't get at him because you stopped me. And he's just following you because he's get, it's so good. You lift that hedge, things got tough. He wouldn't follow you. You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he'll curse you to your face, says Satan. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself not lay a finger. God hands Job over to Satan. Now, a little caveat. If you are struggling and suffering as a Christian, there's generally two reasons that could be true. One is that you're following God with all your heart. You're not sinless, but you're dealing with sin, you're trying to follow him, you're seeking him, and God says, now struggle is going to come because it's going to take you even further, higher up with me, closer to me. It's not that you did anything wrong. It's fact, because you're, not, you're kicking it, that he's, God says, it's time for you to grow and learn. And guess what? You grow best with pain. And so I'm going to allow or bring pain into your life. And that's the Job story. Then there's the other reason. You're not kicking it. You're messing it. And your life, you're, you're the man in 1 Corinthians 5. I don't care what God says. I'm going to live the way I want. I'm going to have sex with my mother or my mother-in-law or my father's wife, I guess is the right way to say it. I don't care what people say. I don't care what's right or wrong. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to do. And so God says, fine, I'll hand you over to Satan so that the pain that comes from Satan's access into your life will bring you to a point of brokenness and repentance so that you will not lose what's ultimately important, your faith. Jesus said, what good is it if a person gains the whole world but loses their soul? And Paul goes, hand him over to Satan. Now, what's scary about this passage is that Paul, an apostle, gives the church, as Jesus does in Matthew 18, authority to hand a person over to Satan, which means that hedge of protection that comes from God on your life as a follower of Christ is removed and Satan has new access into your life to bring things like he did with Job. Because Job had all these flocks, all of them were wiped out. He had a number of children, all of them were wiped out. Everything he had, he lost. Satan attacked him. Now Job, I'm not saying that's gonna happen to you if you're handed over to Satan, but Satan has a access to your life that he doesn't have right now because you're following Jesus, you're in his church, and you're obeying him. I don't know if you know that, that that's what goes on in the spiritual realm around you. 
that it's the grace and the mercy and the love of God that protects us from the attacks of Satan. He lets some through to make us grow. There's no question. But imagine if that hedge was removed. And that's what Paul says. Because my hope, says Paul, is that his heart will be broken. He'll repent and he'll turn back. Now there's another reason why Paul would say this. It's for the individual's healing, but it's also for the protection of the church. Verse 6, your boasting's not good. Don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? If you bake, I'm sure you know, you put some yeast in dough and it spreads through, makes it rise. There's a purpose for it. That became a metaphor for sin, a little bit of sin in a body, in a nation, in a church, in a family, will make its way through and will start to have impact on the whole family, the whole church. You remember the story of Achan from the Old Testament, Joshua, where Achan, they were told they came into the land and God said, now I want you to take the land, that's your mission, that's your purpose, I'll be with you. They face Jericho, they defeat Jericho, and then there's this little town called Ai. I have stood in the ruins of Ai. It's up, you can look down to where Jericho would be. It was a small town. In fact, they don't even send the full force there. They just say, just some of you need to go. It's a small town. And they get whomped. And they get running back. And then Joshua falls on his face. God, why are you doing this? And God says, get off your feet. There is sin in your camp. And until it's dealt with, you are not going to be able to be effective in the purposes that I give because sin undermines and undercuts my authority and my grace in your life. If you are going to choose sin, then I will not flood you with grace and mercy and strength to follow sin. I won't do it any more than you as a parent will give your kid money so that they can go out and get hooked on drugs. So God says... You got to deal with it. And so they deal with Achan. And then afterward, they go up and AI, they defeat. I've experienced this in one of those times of discipline. Again, a major leader in the church. This isn't somebody who just walked in. This is somebody who was a major leader and influencer in the church. They were involved in sexual immorality. And... Um, it became known to two elders, and the two elders and that individual thought at best they just hide it, cover it up, slip it under the carpet. Because you know, it's going to cause a lot of pain and embarrassment and shame when it comes out. So the person stopped the relationship, and then I came to the church. It wasn't this one, so <laughs> don't try to figure out who it was. And uh, we began to really focus on trying to reach people for Jesus. Take the gospel of hope, the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus that brings the forgiveness of sins and new life with God. To give meaning and purpose. And it didn't matter what we tried, we were getting nowhere. Nothing was working. Nothing. I scratched my head, I prayed, I, I thought it was me, it's obviously I'm not leading well, and we just struggled for, I'd say, 18 months. Then the sin became public. And so we sought wisdom, we sought counsel, we sought God, and God said, you need to deal with this. The person needs to repent. 
because of their position as an elder in this church. First Timothy 5 says, rebuke an elder publicly. That's, by the way, uh, the danger of being in ministry and then being involved in sin that disqualifies you. you you've got to tell the church. You don't tell them all the details, but you've got to tell them the reason this elder is no longer an elder. The person refused, said, I'm not doing that. And so, as we sought God, that was something, it was agonizing. That was one of those, this really is going to hurt us more than it's going to hurt you. The agony that we went through, the fighting that, we went through, that came up as a result of it, the attacks, the slander, it was just crazy. And so, but we did what we felt, what we believe God taught us to do from this passage and others, from the wisdom we got. And we dealt with the situation this way. The next two years... We went on a run seeing people come to Jesus like I've never seen before. Because sin impacts the effectiveness of the church to do what God's telling it to do. Sin impacts you from being able to do effectively what God has called you to do. But it impacts us as a church too. And clearly, some sins have more influence than others, and some people have more influence than others. And when a major leader is involved in one of the kinds of sins Paul says, you got to deal with those in verse 11, then it has huge impact on a church. And to protect his church, God says, this is what you need to do. You can't keep letting the person who's unrepentant, doesn't care, and shows up flaunting their sin. You can't let that keep happening. You have to deal with it. Now, I want to emphasize again, I said it would a few times, I want again, this is not, oh man, you know, I, I, I've been involved in sexual immorality, I've been greedy, I've been, you know, drunk or whatever it is that you, you've been that, Paul lists here, and you go, this, we're, like we're not, if you've repented from it, there's no reason to go. Discipline is only for repentance. And once you have repentance, there's no need for discipline anymore. You don't keep disciplining your child when they say they're sorry. Once, once the heart has been changed and the behavior stopped, or started, depending on what it is, you stop the discipline and you embrace the person. So this is not, I'm not telling you this because we elders are going to start looking. And we find, you know what? Get out of here. It's not that type of spirit. It's a brokenness that a person is giving themselves over to sin. And after challenge and after prayer and after meetings and after talk, they still won't deal with it. And so you have to say, then you need to leave. And that hurts a church. But worse is not to deal with it. Because you're hurting the entire church and you're also disobeying Jesus. Now, there's a, the, the interesting thing about this, there's a finish to this story in 2 Corinthians. So guess what? 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are two letters to the same people. It's a little joke. A bad one. It's one of those pastor jokes, right? 
I, I, you got to double it. I, I give dad jokes. I give pastor jokes. That should, there should be a jewel in your crown just for that. Okay, when you get to heaven, you go, look, I had to put up with a lot of bad humor from my pastor. Do I get a crown for that? I hope you do. Really, I do. Uh, where am I? Okay, Second uh, Corinthians. This is what happens later on. Second Corinthians, obviously, written after First Corinthians, and it's later, and so they have enacted the, the, the um, church discipline. They've removed the person, and then Paul, writing later, says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Well, who's caused the grief? Well, the guy in 1 Corinthians 5. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority, the church discipline, is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. There's the key. He's clearly sorrowful for what he did. God, when they handed him over to Satan, Satan must have done some work in his life. It must have broken his spirit. And he said, we're not broke his spirit, broke his rebelliousness. And then he returned to God and confessed his sin. And Paul says, it's done. You embrace, you forgive and embrace him and bring him back in. It's not, you don't keep punishing him. You're not doing this to get back at him. You're doing this to win him back. And he's back. So embrace him. That's Paul's heart. That should always be the heart of all discipline, whether it's with your children or whether it's with somebody in the church. Now, this is going to be the part I think you would struggle most with if we had to do it. Now, I'm not, I'm not preaching this because... This is coming. You know, just preparing you for what's coming down the road in a few weeks. At this point, I am unaware that we need to enter a discipline process. I'm not saying we don't or we won't. I'm just saying at this point, I'm not aware of one. And my prayer is, God, may I not ever have to go through this again. But when you pray those kinds of things, sometimes that God goes, yeah, well, that's exactly what you need to go through. So hopefully, I, we, you know, that's not the way that prayer goes. But I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Associate is to be with, to interact with, to have friendship with, to relate to one another, to do stuff together. And I didn't mean by this the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave the world. Paul said, I'm not talking about people who aren't followers of Jesus. I'm talking about how you handle specifically an individual who has been confronted, been challenged, walked through a process with the elders, and then refuses to repent, and so the church has to discipline, and that's the person I'm talking about. I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, or swindler. For those of you who like scripture, Deuteronomy 17. These come out of the book of Deuteronomy. They were actions that the body or the nation of Israel was to take toward somebody who refused, who did these things but refused to repent. And Paul picks up on that from Deuteronomy and that's why he's listing those things. He says, don't even eat with such people. So, uh, 
When our boys were uh, younger, we had a perfect life. My boys were perfect. Except, of course, when they weren't. So, <laughs> Crystal bought a round table, five foot round. So, we, it was the greatest thing that she ever, no, it wasn't the greatest thing she ever did, but it was a really cool thing that she did. And because what it did is it, it, we were all in conversation with one another. Like, you're right there, because every, there's no corner guy, there's no somebody off, you know, the, he's out of the conversation. You're right in the middle. But far too frequently, one of them would start to pick on the brothers or get sarcastic or say mean things or get saucy. And you'd say, you know, stop doing that. You're ruining our meal. And of course, that worked all the time, right? <laughs> and so finally, I would have to say, you need to go to your room. No, no, no. I don't need this. Go to your room. And then you'd hear the up the stairs. As if, you know, that really upset me and hurt me. Oh, he's stamping on the wooden stairs, huh? So it'd be about two minutes later because he would hear all the laughter and the fun we were having. Didn't matter which boy, about two minutes later. Dad, can I come back down? Well, yeah, if you apologize to your brother or to your mother or to me or whatever it was that he had been doing wrong. Okay. And uh, he'd come back down, apologize. Be back at his seat. And we'd continue on as if nothing happened. For some reason, when you're isolated like that, you have a lot of time to think. And my kids are really smart. It only took them two minutes to figure out, I don't want to be up here by myself. By the way, we didn't let them bring food up into the room either, so maybe that had a plan. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes you need to isolate and remove somebody so they have time to think and miss and consider. And for God and Satan, to do the work in their life that God ordains. You know, my experience in this over the years has been generally when a person gets involved in sin like this and becomes public, people draw away from them. Because it's just really awkward. And, um, and so their relation, they're killing their relationships with their sin. So, of course, they blame you because they're out destroying the relationship by their, you know, their family, their, their kids, their brothers and sisters, their brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's your fault because you, you know, didn't care for them. But what, Paul, I, what I envision Paul saying is, you know, instead of just withdrawing, because you, you can't, <laughs> as, as, as much as you think you can, you can't walk with somebody who starts to go a different direction than you. Eventually, you start, you don't have the same things in common, and you start to go in a different direction. They don't want to hear you talk about how you heard from Jesus Sunday in prayer and how God's working in your life. They don't want that. And so you can't, but usually it just happens, it just kind of fades away. What Paul is saying, I think, is you meet with Bob or Mary. 
And you say, Bob, we're, we've been good friends. And uh, we've been part of serving in the church together. We've had a good relationship with one another, maybe even years. It's like, but you know what? I can't be quiet with you going the direction you're going, sleeping with your mother's wife or your father's wife. And uh, I, I can't support that. That's killing me. It's killing you. It's killing our church. And so if that's the route you're going to go, I don't want you to know, I'm going to be right here. If you ever change your heart and your mind, and come back, but I'm going to stand with Christ on this one. That will mean more to that person. If they ever do come back to Christ, you will be the person they said, well, at least they were honest with me and they love me enough to be honest with me. It's amazing when you do the right thing, the long-term impact that it'll have. They may not like it in the moment. In fact, I'll guarantee you they won't like it in the moment. But if they come back to Jesus, they'll say, they'll honor you for having the courage to tell the truth and love them by telling the truth. And yet this will be the area we stumble the most. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not guessing at that. That's been my experience. It's just so hard. This passage is just so hard. And if you're a mercy person, this passage kills you. There's two reactions that come to church discipline. One is the mercy people who go, well, we were supposed to forgive and forget. And, and how can we do this to the person? And that just seems so mean. And, and we, we just need to wait. And then they'll, they'll eventually come around. And so they would choose the mercy people don't want to deal with the sin. But the justice people, the justice people, get them. How long are we going to put up with this and let them ruin the church? And their family. We need to do something right now. And what the scripture is teaching is mercy and justice are supposed to kiss and how you deal with people in sin. You long for forgiveness. You long for repentance. And you'll give it immediately as soon as true repentance is there. But eventually, you have to address the actions. That's just parenting 101. So, a couple things I want to say just as I close. As you go through passages like this, if you're either thinking about coming to Jesus or you're new to Jesus and this sounds really weird to you, um, understand God's thoughts and ways are different from your thoughts and ways and my thoughts and ways. And there are some things that God commands that really are hard for us. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, they become a test of our obedience. Either you're going to trust the word of God or you're not. Either you're going to trust Jesus or you're not. I can't tell you it'll always be easy. In fact, I guarantee you it will not always be easy. But it will always be good and good for you. You know, when I think of, you remember C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia? When, when the uh, Pavenzi children meet Mother Beaver and they, she starts telling them about Aslan, who's a picture of Christ, and, and they find out he's a lion and the kids go, is he safe? And Mother Beaver, what? Laughs. Safe? Are you kidding? A lion safe? But he is what? Good. Jesus is not safe. 
To follow Jesus will take you out of your comfort zone. He will require of you things that are hard to do, but they're always good. Always. Because he's good. Another thought I had. All discipline, whether parental or church, is about the heart. About how you give it and what you expect of them. Repentance should always release discipline. This passage is not how we deal with sin all the time here. I just want to emphasize that with you. It's for those whose sin becomes public. They call themselves a brother or sister. And they, after a period of time of being challenged and encouraged and, and loved on, they go, no, I'm not changing. That's who this passage is dealing with. So if you're struggling under the weight of your sin and you're seeking God and you're failing and you're seeking God and you're failing, that's what God wants. Just keep seeking him. He will give you the strength. Maybe you need to get help from somebody else. You're not the person this passage is talking about. The person this passage is talking about is the one who says, I don't care, I'm not changing. And now if that's you, your soul's in danger. Because you could shipwreck your faith if you let sin go on without ever dealing with it. And if I have any say in it, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to prevent that from happening. And Jesus will too. Uh, the final thing I would say is Jesus is pretty serious about sin. It, it, it destroys us. It, 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 it tears us away from God. It breaks down relationships in our marriage. It breaks down relationships in our family. It breaks down relationships in our church. It, it turns us into people that are evil. And Jesus is pretty serious about it. And so if God, has been, if, if, if God has been speaking to you or something came to your mind, oh man, I hope they never find out about this. <laughs> then that's your wake up call to say, I need to deal with this. If I'm going to truly be a follower of Jesus, I need to get serious about my sin. I'm not saying you won't struggle with sin. My experience is the more serious I get about Jesus, the more sin I have to deal with. He starts bringing stuff up, attitudes, actions, the way I treat people, like all this stuff I never saw when I was 20 and 30. Now, when I'm 40, <laughs> I, uh, I'm seeing this stuff all over the place. It's not that you have sin that's the problem. It's that you won't deal with it the way Jesus calls you to deal with it. That's the problem. Let me pray over you. I thank you, first of all, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Uh, sometimes in reading passages like this, we forget that you sent your son to die for us on a cross. So you've proven your love for us. You've showed us how much you love us, how, how much you give to us, how merciful and gracious you've been to us. And yet, as a good father, you will not let us continue in pathways that will destroy ourselves and the people around us and the church that you've built, and you will act. So I pray for anyone here that is struggling with sin, that they will seek you, 
They'll have a repentant spirit. They'll find the help that they need to honor you in this area of their lives. Thank you for those who have faithfully struggled against sin for years. I don't think there's a person here that is perfect. Well, in fact, I know there isn't. But there's many here who have pursued you and followed you and dealt with sin in their life, their whole lives, and still are. And I thank you for their love for you and their desire to follow you. Would you help us to become a people who are different than the world around us? We don't feed our souls with sin, but seek to be people of integrity, righteousness, and truth. And God, may you use us to strengthen, encourage, reach our neighbors, our friends, our people around us so that they might experience the love and the forgiveness and the restoration of Jesus through the cross.